Welcome to the Broken Bike Chart Podcast, episode 247. I'm your host, Derek Moore. Back with me is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pesticelli. Jay, how are we doing today? Derek, doing well. Glad to be back. I think you let me off for a week. I did. We uh, we had a, a actually an in-depth episode really asking the question, are investors rooting for the wrong thing? And it was, everyone wants lower rates. But if the Fed has to lower rates, doesn't that express that there's some sort of pain in the economy somewhere? I don't know. We'll talk a little bit about what Goldman Sachs says about rates uh, going forward today. Yeah, I got some rate commentary. Like It's a brand new topic for us. Kidding. Let's roll, buddy. Let's roll. <laughs> well, you watched something on, uh, I think Ray Dalio had some comments. Ray yeah, Dalio is a little bit did. under fire, too. Uh, he is, he is, he is. I mean, do you want me to comment on that for a minute? What I, what he said this morning? Let's talk yeah, about I that. Thought, yeah. I, he was asked, you know, his, uh, his outlook on rates and I thought he did a really good job of succinctly explaining the primary driver of rates. The very first point that he brought up was inflation. He said the fed wants inflation and interest rates to be about to to be about the same right he believes that the 10 years should be paying you uh, at least what the inflation rate is and then creditors are going to want a little more maybe another one one and a half points for taking the risk of being a lender so expect treasuries to be somewhere the 10 year to be somewhere around inflation plus 1.50 so which makes sense so if the fed can you know Get rates, I say the Fed, like they're actually contrib- contributing. If if uh, if inflation can't get down to 2%, expect a 3.5% on the Treasury, right? That's kind of what he was saying. Just tie inflation and interest rates together. They should be linked. Um, and the other thing he talked about was then there's supply and demand, right? You got the pull and push, right? You have, uh, you know, in order to, I think he was leaning towards, you know, we're probably going to create too much supply for treasuries, but supply and demand are also a factor. And so if there's too many bonds out there, there won't be enough buyers. So buyers, so bonds will drop in price. This is general basic stuff, right? Which means rates go up. So you can have a dynamic of having too much debt out there, which would also push rates a little higher. So those are the two points that he brought up on how to kind of get an expectation of what interest rates uh, should look like based on today's environment. So I thought that was a nice, succinct way of taking those two points and putting it together. So, you know, whether you believe it or not, I don't know, but that was his perspective. And uh, I shared that with the team today. Uh, Derek, you had a comment or two about it, right? Well, I mean, really what he's talking about there is the return of a sustained period of, of real rates, real getting a real yield, which simply means your real interest rate is what you get after inflation. So like in your example, if inflation's 3% and the 10 year is 3%, like you're not getting a real yield above, above inflation. So, and we know that really for a decade, more than a decade since 2008, investors investing in bonds were getting a negative real yield, especially on the short end. On the supply and demand, I mean, what he kind of thinks is, it's going to start to feed on itself, like debt begets more debt, meaning the more debt you have, especially if rates are higher, the more the net interest payments uh, need to be, the more money the government has to uh, finance or issue in bonds. So, I mean, this is one of the reasons, Jay, why I 
I know I'm probably like the only one. There's other people besides me, but I look at things like the bid to cover in treasury auctions. I want to see like, is there demand in those auctions? So I, I hear what he's saying though. I mean, at some point you think, is demand so elastic that it will just keep going and going and going? I don't know. But I do think the return to real rates sort of is something that people aren't really factoring in where, yes, inflation might go back to 2% or 3%, but what about the time premium? What about real yield demanded by investors, Jay? Yep. Anyway, I thought that was all uh, good stuff. So thanks for letting me review it. Yep. Well, I mean, speaking of rates, Goldman Sachs came out with a uh, couple forecast. And what they did was they said, well, first of all, the probability of recessions. Goldman Sachs among you know the Bloomberg consensus is probably a little bit less than 50%. I'd call, you know, I'm just eyeballing this chart about 57% probability of a recession in the next 12 months. Goldman Sachs is under 20% now. Who's right? Who's wrong? I, I don't know. I mean, we're talking about probabilities. It's not certainty. But Goldman is kind of saying, hey, we think it's less than 20% on disinflation progress. I, I don't know about this. It's, it, I feel like the contrarian would say, just when everyone's lowering it is when something will happen. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Well, it do, yeah, it doesn't look like consensus is coming down really materially yet. I mean, it's, you know, yes, it's kind of like slowly dipping here while Goldman Sachs is definitely down. What were they uh, in June? They were what, just shy of 40% chance and now they're just shy of 20. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's an interesting point, right? As soon as everybody feels like the water is clear, that's when, you know, Jaws 2 gets released. So I think, uh, I, you know, you and I usually are contrarians and we feel when everybody's thinking something, you should go the other way. But, you know, when I think of the things that would drive a recession, it's, you know, we, we might be a little stressed to put, uh, put, our, put, our, put our fingers on it without some, you know, extemporaneous event, right? I mean, it seems like interest rates coming down, earnings are going up. You know, uh, bond rates are coming down a little bit. I mean, the market doesn't really feel like it's expecting it. I mean, a lot of things can cause a recession. Don't get me wrong, right? I'm certainly not whistling past the graveyard on this one. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure. You know, I think you and I have thought we didn't have to have a recession. Are you saying now you're on the side of, okay, now everybody's in my camp. I got to switch camps. Are you like uh, Groucho Marx and any club that would have me, I don't want to be a part of kind of a deal? I mean, I, I also think that I'm sort of tired talking about this, to be honest with you, because we've been talking about this for the last two years or 18 months. And if you go back, Jay, you remember this. Remember in, I don't know, like 2013, 2012, 2010, oh, we're going to have a double dip recession. The the big one's coming, you know? I mean, this it's like, this is hard to do to really predict recessions. And by the way, even if we have a recession, the NBER will tell us we're in a recession for another six to 12 months anyway. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like employment is the thing. It's the last to go. It's really hard to, you know, you don't know that employment's going bad until it's going bad. I know everyone thinks they're looking at an uptick and a moving average or this or that, but 
I don't know. It's, it's maybe the expectations though, Jay, that it's coming down, lead people to go out and buy more. Maybe, maybe that's a, a indirect impact to that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, all those indicators that we've seen that tell us every time there's been a recession, this one thing has happened, right? Like the, the uh, uh, you know, the two, the three month and the 10 year, right? Or uh, what was that fun little rule that the, the woman had that said, well, when this happens with the uh, unemployment rate, I think you're just referencing it. Oh, the song every rule. time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. Yes. It's a rule. It has to be true. I, yep. I you know, I don't know, man. I, I uh, like th- there is nothing that's absolute in the market. Right. So you and I do not uh, operate in absolutes. So I, 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 yeah, I'm with you. Like, I think I'm, I'm getting tired of talking about the recession chance. I do think it matters to the market on how much money people are able to spend and the consumer continues to be strong. And, uh, you know, those are things that really kind of drive earnings and and rates. And that's the thing that drives the market. So I'm not sure how much it's really going to matter. I don't want to spend too much more time on this, but in their forecast, uh, Jay, I sent you a chart. Obviously, the audience can't see this. But on the right-hand side, major developing markets, I think the U.S. is that blue line. If I'm reading this right, Goldman Sachs has the policy rate forecast pretty much not changing in 24 and then start in 25 to go down. But even through 27, if I'm reading this right, it's about three and a half is where they see rates coming down, which, I mean, if this is what happens... Um, you know, it's a higher for longer, but these change so often. I mean, it's like, you know, if if you're sort of making decisions based upon the forecast you read that week, good luck. Yep. Good luck. All right. I want to talk about, you know what, let me talk about uh, auctions. We need to talk about F1, Formula One, and how that can inform us about options markets uh, that's coming up. I, I did want to just, uh, I'd taken a screenshot of Treasury auction results. And I, I'm not going to go through all this, Jay. We, you know, I'll save that for one that uh, you take the week off. But it, I do look at these. And, and basically, the reason I bring this up, it goes to your point on the Dalio comments about supply and demand. The Treasury auctions off differently. They auction off bills, notes, and bonds. And it's just, it's all Treasury. It just depends on when they mature. Uh, things like bills, a lot of times are zero coupon. They don't pay a, a coupon. They just issue them at a discount. But I I just thought it, it would be interesting to understand, like when you watch CNBC, not you, but the proverbial, our audience watches CNBC, and they say, oh, it wasn't a good auction, or the bid to cover was like, what are they talking about? Well, I pulled up a, a recent one that didn't go so well. This is a 20-year bond auction. And the price, the final price was 89.35. That, that gives you a yield of about 5.25%. So think about that. The treasury is issuing a brand new 20 year bond and the, the yield that everybody got who bid was above the interest coupon rate. That means it was, you know, people weren't willing to pay par. They, they required a discount. But the, the interesting thing about this, I don't, I'm sure you know this, but the audience may not. It's a Dutch, Dutch auction, auction. So imagine like, you know, me and you and JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. And yeah, I'm putting our names in there with those folks. We're in there. 
We're in yeah, there. of you course. So yeah. imagine we're we're putting you can put a non-competitive bid in, which means hey, just give me whatever the final deal is, or you can set like, okay, um, the least you know I I need to get a five percent yield, right? But it's a Dutch auction, and that what's what's really interesting is, let's say everybody's bidding, and it's the last bid that gets you to sell the whole amount is the highest one. Everyone gets that high yield. Right. Which is kind of fascinating. Right. Yeah. But the yeah. bid to cover thing, last thing I'll, I'll talk about this, is you look at the amount that's that's bid or tendered. Uh, and this auction was about $33.6 billion. Accepted was $13 billion. If you, if you do the math there, it's about a 2.5, what's called bid to cover. And that's just a fancy way for saying how much was bid the 33.6 divided by the 13, and that's your bid to cover. This goes to the, this, now I'm bringing it back to the Dalio points. Like if you were worried about supply and demand, you'd start to watch these auctions. And if the bid to cover, meaning the amount that's bid, starts to drop down relative to where it's been, that would show you, the, show you that the demand is waning on here. So I won't go through all this stuff, but it's it's interesting to me. Maybe it's only interesting to me, but this is where you would see it. No, nobody really knows how, nobody, a lot of people don't know how the, how an auction works. So I think it's great that you're going through that. I, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. I always thought like whatever they, you know, tendered is what got bought and they just sold as much as they can, no matter how low that it went. Are you saying that when they tendered 33, you know, billion and only, only 13 was accepted? That's right. That was the size. So that's, that's all that they, they, um, that's all that they were able to sell. Yep. They, they, or wanted to sell. Yeah. I mean, they, they, oh, uh, oh, they sold oh, that. Yeah. yeah. And basically, so what happens though is, so there's, there's non-competitive competitive, non-competitive. Oh, the tender is, is not what they were on. The tender is the, the bids that were in there already. What they sold was the 13, not the other way around. They didn't say, Hey, we've got 33 to sell and only 13 got picked up. They came in. No, no, the opposite. It's 13 to sell, but. Oh, it is. Yeah. So 13 was available for sale. 33 got, uh, got bid. And, but people, so let's say someone's like, oh, I want 6%. Well, they they didn't get filled. They didn't get any. Because what they do is they, they, they take the lowest yield first and then they sort of work up until they fill the whole thing. So, um, but if you're lucky enough, you know, in this in this case, it looks like about 79% was allotted at the high yield, which is 5.245. So uh, actually a lot of people. But you see in the 20 year isn't as, as much of a, a bid auction. But if you look at the 30 year, I think I looked at one recently, 17% of the people or 17% were allotted at the high bid, but everyone gets that. It's a Dutch auction. So it's kind of interesting. All right. We, I think we can move on from this. I don't want to bore our audience, but bore. <laughs> but uh, all right. So let me talk about F1, Jay. I know you're excited about the race in Las Vegas this weekend, right? Maybe. Yeah, Vegas, really. baby. Yeah. All right. I wish they wouldn't do it at midnight, though. Like they're doing it at really cockamamie times. But, you know, I get why. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's honestly, I mean, I'm you're several hours behind me or in front of me, whatever it is on the East coast. And I still might tape it and watch it the next day because 
So, but the reason I bring this up and about a year ago, if you wanted a hotel room, uh, somebody gave the example, the Flamingo Hotel, which is right on the strip, was about 800 to $900 a night. And now I think Saturday night is like 200 bucks. And somebody posted they got a room for $18. Tickets are also plummeting. So, you know, tickets were supposed to be, I think, 1600 just to get in. And now I think people are getting in, you know, the get-in price is under 1000 The reason I bring this up is there's really, this so reminds me of an option market. And it's, you think about, you have the dealer side. Those are people maybe who bought tickets and hoping to sell them for more. And you also have the, the consumer side. And you look at supply and demand. But Jay, doesn't it just remind you of option markets where you have time decay, but you also have volatility. And clearly, volatility is dropping, meaning the prices are coming down. And also, time decay is really high right now because if you own tickets and you want to sell them, or if you own a, a hotel and you want to fill the rooms, there's going to be increasing pressure to lower the rates to get people in there. I just thought it was an interesting comparison to the options market, Jay. No, I can, I can appreciate what you're doing there, right? Because as you get closer, like the ticket after the event is obviously worthless, right? So you have this expiration going on. Um, I'm thinking of the time, Derek, you and I went to uh, a Giants Super Bowl, right? That's right. And in Arizona. In Arizona. And uh, we didn't go together. But you're like, yeah, I'll go. If I was Jay, if you're going, I'll go. We, you, you, we picked up a ticket and it's like, Okay, I hope this thing works, but and it did, by the way, for both of us. Mm-hmm. But um, and that's always that anxiety, right? Like, oh boy, is it going to get through yeah. the little scanner? Um, but like, right? I mean, you could charge. You know, you may be able to charge more leading up because there might be excitement or you know volatility or speculation of a great game. It seems like you know the speculation of a great race or the public interest is coming down. So no one's willing to pay as much of a premium on it. I, yeah, I think that was a nice try to, to kind of connect the dots there. That's good. I always like when we can take a everyday, you know, scenario that everybody kind of understands and apply options to it. That makes sense. I, I will tell you, Jay, I think we talked about this. I went to the first home game of the World Series, the Diamondbacks, and I did not have a ticket. And that's the benefit when you live in the city and you're sort of indifferent. Like if I went down to, to the stadium and I didn't get the price I wanted, I would just drive back home. And really it's my opportunity cost and just, you know, the gas I spent to go down there, my time. And lo and behold, you know, tickets were really, really expensive. Waited, waited, waited. And closer you get to expiration, they come down. I got in really at a nice price. You know, and it's. Uh, did you get the first inning, or did you have a few innings pass for before? No, you no, got I got, I got in. I think I actually, I think I got a ticket from somebody who wasn't supposed to sell a ticket because at some point, oh. like one of the one of the part owners, he had an owner's badge, came up and shook everybody's hands next to me, and then he shook my hand and he assumed I was with him. So. I don't know what was going ah. on there, but, you know, a little opportunity there. So. Somebody shook your hand. Got it. That sounds yep. fun. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why it's I brought like that It's like trading, up. right? Some, you wait for your price. You wait for your price. You wait for your price. How many times have we missed a trade by, you know, two or three cents because you waited, right? So sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Do you, you feel you could have got it cheaper if you waited just another 15 minutes? Well, to your point, sometimes you wait and you don't get anything. So there's a yep. sweet spot where you take what you get, you're happy with it, and then you just move on. But 
yeah. you know, that, yeah. that's it. All right, Jay. Another thing I wanted to bring up is will Uber wind up in the S and P 500? I was thinking the other day, and it's really not a question. I mean, Uber is about $120 million or $20 billion market cap company. But it got me thinking the other day about, and I sent you a, a spreadsheet on this um, from S&P, the idea that you know no one ever thinks about the impact of companies coming in and going out of the index. And you know if you look, uh, the last... Well, Hubble, H-U-B-B, they came in on October 18th. Um, Organon, I'm not familiar with that company. They left. Uh, but there are a couple of big names, like Blackstone came in. And, you know, for comparison, I think they replaced Lincoln National Corp, which was a regional bank. Blackstone's earnings and revenues are, you know, dwarf Lincoln National. Airbnb came in. And took over a company that uh, uh, market cap uh, probably went too far under. Palo Alto took over for Dish. So the reason I bring this up is I don't think anybody ever really talks about this. And no one ever really, you know, S&P 500 is a living, breathing thing. And companies are coming in there. They're going out of it. The weightings change. We talked about that before. But I think it, the reason why I bring it up is it's it's an undervalued thing that happens. Like when you bring in theoretically stronger companies, bigger companies, their earnings are better, their earnings growth should be better in theory. Um, so I don't know if you've you've given any thought to this lately about you know when earnings everyone's like looking at the earnings and they're making expectations for earnings, but are they really taking into account that? in 2024, we're going to have some new companies joining. I don't know. Well, I, right. I mean, it's, that's, this is the beauty of the index where the index is uh, acquiring, you know, is including growing firms and removing shrinking firms. And so if you had a firm that was shrinking, shrinking, shrinking in revenue, they were, or earnings, they were driving down the earnings of the S&P, all other things being equal, right? So if you put in a firm now that's growing just by the mix I think your point is like, hey, the earnings for the composite, right? These 500, I think it's still 501, right? Stocks that are in the S&P 500 uh, could go up because companies that are on, uh, that have this momentum of growth are coming in and companies that were causing the down move uh, because they were shrinking are going out. I, I think I would say uh, certainly that is true. You're not wrong about that. I would ask to what degree, right? I would ask, you know, I get it. BlackRock is huge or Blackstone is huge. I get it, right? But overall, does it really matter that much to the change in the earnings, right? Like I'd like to see all things being equal. Like what percentage of earnings was contributed by Airbnb or Lululemon or Hubble, right? Like, let's see, or Palo Alto, let's see what that's really driving, what percentage and what piece of the overall earnings per share those new companies were versus the ones that were leaving. So I think that ends up being, okay, you're right, theoretically, not theoretically, practically, you're absolutely right. But is it a material difference is my pushback? Well, 
And I don't think you're wrong to ask that question. And one of the things they use is what's called the divisor. And this is, uh, it, it's not public. I think S&P 500 or S&P, the group that uh, you know, manages the index, they have a committee, by the way, that votes on who to bring in, who to bring out, when to do it. They can sort of do it at any time. Remember, Tesla was the big one everyone speculated on for a while. But they have this formula called the divisor. And the divisor right now on the S&P 500 is 8380.85. What does that really mean? Well, you can imagine that when you have an index, let's say one day all the members of the index are what they are. And imagine you, you add a really big company that's high in price and has a lot of shares. Well, adding that company and taking somebody else would jump the index and in order to sort of smooth that out so that doesn't happen, you think about it. If you have splits, if you have mergers, if you have buybacks, all those sorts of things, they compute what's called this divisor. So if you multiply the divisor times the price of the S&P 500, that's going to give you about what the market cap is. And it's roughly $36 trillion in market cap. And it's the same thing if you take the divisor times the earnings per share. That's going to give you your your total earnings. But Jay, that divisor, to your point about how much it really matters, it does mute some of this. I think it's, uh, so it's not like, oh, you know, you you took out a company with a million dollars in net income and you put somebody with a hundred million and the earnings go up. It, it That's true in aggregate, but the divisor sort of smooth things out. Really what I think though, is if you have better companies that are growing and companies that can qualify because they're growing and they're making money, Maybe that does, on the margin, help to boost the the chance for higher EPS. But that divisor thing, which I, people have tried to figure out how they can how they do it, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's I I get it. But look, I think I think it's a good point. Interesting that you brought it up. I am probably not. Uh, you know, it seems like uh, the bigger the index that has like the biggest impacts when they when they change the participants, and for some reason. Um, is it just seems to be more of an anticipated change is the Russell 2000, right? When they do that rebalance, I mean, you actually could see the options market kind of bracing for a change in the Russell because of the participants in the Russell. You know, uh, good ones leave, right? They move up, right? They move out of small cap. They move to mid cap. Um, other ones coming down, go in. It's like kind of an interesting dynamic. When you look at the S&P, once you're in, there's nowhere else to go. Like you're at the top of the house, right? So they're not like, you're not, nobody, like Apple isn't leaving because it went to a bigger index, right? It doesn't go to different classification. Whereas when you look at a Russell, it's, you know, coming in and coming out. So I think that reconstitution is always a little more, uh, uh, I don't know, feels like there's always a little more anticipation and planning around that. Uh, but, you know, versus what the S&P does. I don't know if you observe the same thing. Yeah, no, I, th- I think so. And, and there is some math. It's sort of once a company is announced to be in the S&P, I think a lot of people try and get ahead of it. And I'm sure the, you know, the options market looks at that too. Once it's in though, I'm not sure that, you know, it is a benefit obviously to be in the indexes because you get institutional buying every 401k that, uh, but yeah, it, the Russell though, by the way, it's, you know, if you have a, a weighting change from a small company, like you said, the impact is much greater. And by the way, the Russell, I think I saw something the other day, 40% of the companies aren't profitable in the Russell. And 
the PE ratio, unlike the S&P, unlike the Dow, unlike the NASDAQ, when the PE ratio is, is calculated for the Russell, it does not take into account negative earnings. In other words, when you aggregate all the earnings, any negative earnings are swept aside. They only use the positive earnings. Yeah, they don't, they don't offset the positive earnings of the other companies, right? That's right. They don't net them out. It's really kind of, it's an absolute value. Well, not, not really. It's just zero. It's a zero contribution. It is. I don't think they should do it that way, but it's not up to me. So And it's not up to us. I don't think you're wrong, <laughs> but it's not up to us. All right. I want to uh, change gears. I'm going to throw something at you. We have, we've had a lot of questions recently about the intrinsic value of an option versus the extrinsic value of the option. You know, we use these terms like, you know, we know them by the, like the back of our hand. But I wonder if we should spend a little time, I mean, this is some, we'll call this an options class portion of the, the podcast, but I'm going to throw this to you. Uh, I'll get you, I'll let, have you get it started, but intrinsic versus extrinsic. And I don't know if you have an example. Sure. Yeah. All right. I'll put on my uh, options geek hat for a moment here and talk about extrinsic and intrinsic. I would think, I think about these two parts of an option as such. So extrinsic is a lot of people refer to it as time value. It's not just time value, right? It's volatility that's in there and things like that. But extrinsic is the part that eventually uh, when an option expires, uh, I'll say shrinks down to zero, right? Time decays down to zero. The only thing that I can guarantee in the markets is that tomorrow comes after today and options will decline in extrinsic value. Uh, Eventually, they get down to zero. So extrinsic value is that time component. I think we like to call it the juice of an option from time to time. Like how juicy is an option? How much extrinsic value is in there? It's almost like the intangible opportunistic speculation of an option, right? It's almost uh, like it's the emotional representation of where an option, of where the underlying can go. Intrinsic is actually just straight math. What is the difference between your strike price and whatever you're trading? So like, let's say, for example, we've got our favorite stock XYZ, that's trading at 105, uh, and you have a call that has a strike of 100, the intrinsic value, the in the money amount, is $5, right? There's a value. And why does that have value? Well, look, if I have the right to buy a stock at 100 when it's trading at 105, intrinsically, that has $5 of value to me, right? Of course, I would like to pay only $100 for that stock. It's trading at 105. Well, what's that worth to you? Well, it's worth five bucks. Okay, that's the difference. That's the intrinsic value. That's the amount in the money an option is. The extra on top of that intrinsic value, all the other pricing in it is the extrinsic value. So let's say that option, instead of just being $5 in my scenario that I just gave, a $100 uh, strike call on a 105 uh, XYZ stock, Let's say that option was going for $7. Well, we already know $5 is in the money. We know that there's an intrinsic value of $5. The extra $2 for the total of seven is what is known as the extrinsic value. It's the amount that you get on top of it. And as time decays, as uh, Derek was using in his F1 example, eventually, right up until expiration, there's no time value left, right? Why would you pay anything more than the value right at expiration? So if it was 359 on a Friday before expiration 
and you still had that long 100 call uh, against a 105 price on XYZ, why would anybody give you anything more than $5 for that call? They wouldn't, right? So uh, unless there's something really wacky and then, but that's, we could leave that out. But generally nobody would give you more than that. Nobody would give you $6 for an option that's only going to be worth $5 in, in exactly one second from now when the bell rings. So that is the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic. The intrinsic is the in the money. The extrinsic is all the juice outside of it. I think you went at this with the from the call side. I'll flip it and I'll I'll kind of take it from the put side. Imagine ah, yeah. you sold you sold a hundred dollar put and you brought in seven dollars. Okay. You brought in five dollars of intrinsic, you brought in two dollars of extrinsic, which means if if all else equal, and well, I don't even know why I said all else equal, but let's say the stock is at 105 at expiration, you sort of keep the $2. I mean, that's, that's really what you make. But if the, if the stock changes, you could actually make some intrinsic value as well. So, yeah, so I think in your example, if I could clarify, I think what, uh, what so now we're talking about an in-the-money put right? Instead mm-hmm. of an in the money call. You're right. I started with that. So in your example, if the stock is trading at 105, the put that's $5 in the money that has the $5 of intrinsic value is actually the 110 put, right? In the example you were giving, right? Because it's an in the money put. So if you could sell that put for $7, that put is in the money because the strike is higher, right? Again, Let's and people don't always think about the, like the difference of what an in the money put means, right? It means you have the right to put it to somebody, you have the right to sell it, right? So if you're a, an owner of a one ten put, right, you and the stock is trading at one oh five, you know at least you're going to be able to sell at one ten while it's trading in the market one oh five. That's the intrinsic value of five bucks, right? Of course, I'd like to sell at one ten. It's trading at one hundred five in the market. Uh, if somebody wants to, I've got the right to sell at 110. That's worth at least $5. So just the opposite side of the call, where you've got the right to buy at 100 in this scenario, you've got the right to sell at 110. That is the $5 of in the money. Sorry, I jumped in there, Derek, just to clarify the in the money is the different sides. No, it's good. If, if we edit, if we actually edited the show, we would edit it out and restart it. Because yeah, I was I I was thinking selling in the money call, and then I I switched to in the money put. So thanks for uh, correcting that. Listen to what so Jay said there. I, I tried not to what smooth I it out. I tried to smooth <laughs> it through. That's the beauty of you yeah. and I together. That's right. That's right. So you know the other thing I'll point out that is the intrinsic value, like all of the option Greeks, the volatility effect on options prices, time decay interest rates, all of that stuff, uh, I mean, especially like volatility and time decay, the big ones, that only affects the extrinsic, that out of the money amount. It does not affect the intrinsic. The intrinsic, as you said, Jay, is, is what it is. So if you're pricing an option, the in the money amount is always going to be there intrinsically. And then it's all the other stuff, the volatility that affects the extrinsic, so or the out of the money amount. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the good part about options and a good part about technology these days is people have like actually have access to to this data. On most trading platforms, you can kind of see intrinsic, extrinsic, and stuff like that. But 
um, it's still a little tough to, to sort of conceptualize the those two components of it. Yep. No, I'm glad. I, listen, I could talk about this stuff all day. And I think a lot of our listeners like to hear about the things that drive those prices. But it's always, you know, I always like to come back to uh, the way that, uh, you know, might you might find in a book like The Broken Pie Chart or Buy and Hedge. Both great books. books. Shameless yes. plug. Yeah, great books. Where it always comes down to what is the option? Are you are do you have the rights or are you obligated? And what do you have to do or what can you do? Right. And when I say those things, I mean like if you own a call or own a put, you're the one that has all the control. And when you own a call, you have the right to buy the stock. You know, you know where that came from, Derek. Maybe not everybody knows. You have the right to call the stock away from somebody, right? I'm going to call it, in other words, buy it. I guess the term buy was already taken when they were coming up with option terms, right? But a long call, right? When you own a call, you have the right to call the stock away from somebody. And with a put, the same thing is true, but the opposite, right? I should say the opposite is true. You have the right to put it to somebody or sell it to somebody, right? I, I don't want this stock anymore. Stock's trading at 105. I want to put it to somebody at 110. They got to give me $110, right? So if you can always go back to what is the right and what is the obligation with the option, it helps you kind of always, you know, think through what's most likely to happen, right? Um, we, we talk about this all the time with, uh, um, with options that are in the money that have intrinsic value. We just talked about that a second ago, but the extrinsic amount actually matters on how the person who's on the other side of the trade may, may react. Let's take, for example, you've got a deep in the money call, meaning the market, uh, you're the one that sold the call, right? Uh, the market is kind of moved up. It's through your call, right? Let's say the market is trading at one Oh five and you ha- and you sold that one Oh five call, meaning you, uh, somebody has the right, to put it, to give it to you, right? They could, sorry, they could call it from you at a hundred while it's trading at one Oh five. So look, even me explaining it, it can get a little jumbled. So if you are the short call holder, let's say Derek, you are the long call holder, right? You're long the hundred, I'm short the hundred and it's trading at one Oh five, right? You're psyched, right? You're like, Hey, I got the right to buy this stock at a hundred, even though it's trading at one Oh five. That means I have to, uh, I'm going to, you know, you're going to call it from me. I'm going to give it to you, but I'm only going to get $100 for it as the short call uh, seller, right? So that's the dynamic when it comes to the options. But what matters at expiration, obviously, you would say, look, I'm, I'm, I want the stock at 100. It's trading at 105, right? You would obviously call it from me and I would have to give it to you. And I'd only get 100 bucks, and you would own now the stock at 105 that, sorry, at 100 while it was trading at 105. The, but what about if that option has this extrinsic value in it of, you know, of two extra dollars? Now it's $7, right? So let's say we're coming up on expiration and you're like, well, the stock could still move quite a bit, right? It's trading at 105. I don't know. It could be down at 100 in two weeks from now. I don't know if I want to take the stock right now. I could call it, right? You could call it at that price, or you could just trade the option in the market, right? You've got all this intrinsic value. It's in the price, right? The option price is always going to carry that $5 gain, but then it's got this $2 juice on top of it, right? Would you, in that scenario, if you're ready to get out, would you exercise your call 
and make me uh, give you the stock at 100? Or would you just sell that call for $7 out in the market? Well, I think it's obvious. I'm going to take the $2 extra. Right. You would then trade the option. You'd say, well, I don't actually want to spend all that money, right? I, now I got to look, it's a $5 gain. If I buy it at 100 and turn around and sell it in the market for five bucks, that's your intrinsic gain. That's right. Or you could just sell the call. Like, hey, I'm just going to trade the option away, right? I'm just going to trade it for $7. So there. So in other words, when you are short a call, and this is a lot of times that people forget this, right? You're short a call, or short a put, and the, like if you're running a cover call strategy, and the market has run up through your strike, you don't have to automatically expect that you are going to have to deliver the stock, meaning it being called away from you, at the strike price. Sometimes there's enough juice in the option where the person on the other side of your trade, and there is a person on the other side of that trade, right? You're not trading against the, you know, the big blue uh, nether of uh, of the of the options world. There's a, there's someone on the other side that says, you know what? If I want out, now's the time for me to close that call out, and they'll make seven dollars instead of five. And so it's just one of those things that I think people always worry, like, well, as soon as it went in the money. Buy buy stock, buy buy XYZ. Not necessarily. If there's still enough time value in that option, you are not going to get assigned. Look, you always have the chance of getting assigned. By the way, you always have the chance of getting assigned even when your option is out of the money. There are plenty of people that make mistakes with options, right? And they accidentally do something like that. So I'm not saying you don't have the chance, but any rational trader on the other side of your trade, why would they only make $5, right? Instead, they could make seven. By the way, you as the short, I guess you, I say, as anybody that's holding the short uh, call, you just got out of owing $7, right? When you have that short call in your portfolio, you're short seven bucks. Like you owe seven if you want to cover. If you want out, it would cost you seven. So they did you a favor by actually uh, assigning the option. So I don't know. Sorry, I went on the tangent of uh, in the money and time value and assignments. But I just I think a lot of people that sell calls feel like selling calls is really easy until all of a sudden your calls are in the money because the stock has moved up through them. That's okay. Calm down. You don't have to act right away. Watch that extrinsic value to determine if you're going to get assigned or not. I won't go through the mechanics of of how you know a random assignment meaning not on expiration day, but early assignment. If somebody chooses to exercise and get shares, there's sort of a randomness about which firm, which accounts. I will tell you, though, uh, Marty Kearney from the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, him and I used to do these these joint presentations. And uh, with a, a very straight face, he was, you know, somebody asked a question, how, how is it determined? He says, well, um, Basically, we go out at F, uh, at the end of the day, and we have a big wheel, and everyone's account numbers are on a piece of paper on right on you know LaSalle Avenue, and uh, and we make a big deal about it. We have a band, and we we spin the wheel, and we pick account numbers out of it, and people were like writing down like they thought he was actually being serious. He's like, no, that's not how it, that's not how it's done. There is, there is yeah. sort of a random process, but uh, it's it's been a long time since I've explained it, and I think we've done. We've done uh, enough detailed I've, I've worn my, uh, my nerdy options hat long enough. <laughs> okay. it, it doesn't Fair matter. Enough. It doesn't Fair matter. Enough. All right, Jay, let's get to uh, some uh, some things. Do we have any recommendations? I, I actually have a few, but uh, what, I'm going to go to you, you start first. Out? 
No, no, okay. no. I'm going to let you start. You start. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll go, I'll give one and then I'll give another one after yours. So the, the first one is a book called The Fund by Rob Copeland. And we were talking about Ray Dalio earlier. It's on Bridgewater. It's on Ray Dalio. I, I think it's pretty interesting. I'm, I'm not too far into it. It's, it, it's not painting Ray Dalio in the best light, um, both from sort of an organizational standpoint and then also just, um, you know, return and market calls and things like that. So, but it's, I think it's a really good read so far. And so that's, that's one of my recommendations, the fun by Rob Copeland. I think it's brand new. It's only been out like a week. Oh, all right. Uh, I have a recommendation for something that you should not see, which was disappointing. Uh, oh, you have a so sell recommendation. I have a sell. Not a <laughs> and avoid. Yeah, not okay. a buy. I got a sell. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it was uh, produced by uh, and directed by an actor that I really like, Charlie Day, who is from sunny in Philadelphia, if you know him. He had a movie that came out called Fool's Paradise, and it had a lot of big, uh, big names in it, right? And uh, I was like, Ray Liotta was in it. John Malkovich was in it. Uh, Edie Falco was in it. Jason Sudeikis was in it. Kate Beckinsale was in it. I was like, well, there's a lot of great names in this. And uh, nope, don't do it. Don't watch it. I would say not really. I get like I get what he was going for. Not my favorite. Yeah, even Jason Bateman had a little role in it. Common had a little role in it. Adrian Brody was in it. Like you think of all these names and it was not my fave. All right. Well, that's good. To, I wasn't even aware of it, but now I know. I will uh, like, it's you're a stay Charlie away. Day fan. Like, I love everything Charlie does, right? So I try to watch everything. I was, you know, disappointed in this one. Sorry, Charlie. Horrible, horrible Bosses <laughs> was a couple of his, uh, hilarious. Hilarious. his movies. Yes. All right. That's, that's an avoid. We don't get those that often. It's like the... No, uh, uh, one of... So the other thing is it's a documentary series on Hulu called Brawn. Uh, it's F1 in Vegas week. So figured I'd go with this. Keanu Reeves, I think he either produced it, but he definitely, he does all the interviews. He's on camera. And I don't ever really see Keanu Reeves do anything except movies. So it was interesting to see him. It's a, Braun is a team that uh, back in, I think, 2008, during the financial crisis, Honda pulled out of F1. And Braun was the guy's name who wound up owning it for, he paid a dollar or a pound, as he says, to, to buy the team because he basically took over the operations. And they surprisingly uh, started off, you know, like they won their first ever race as a team, which is unheard of. So kind of interesting. I'm not done with it so far, but that's a buy recommendation, Jay, not a sell. I would, uh, I would, I would recommend that. I only came with sells today, Derek. All right. Do you remember when I was first starting out in the business? So I was at Smith Barney. And back in, in early nineties, they would like, there were only buy recommendations. So it was like a buy was a buy. There was strong buy, there was buy, and there was hold. And like buy, strong buy was buy, buy was a hold and hold really equaled sell. Like no one ever put a, a sell recommendation. I may have told the story before. And I asked one of the senior people, I was pretty young. How can we never see a sell recommendation? He said, you know what, Derek? If I put a sell recommendation on stock, when they open up their new plant in Maui, I don't get an invite as an analyst. So he said, yeah, it's just hold is really a sell. Nowadays, I think it's different. 
they actually put the real recommendations on. But you remember, Jay, in the 90s, there was never any cells. Yeah, no, no cells. And look, the only time you would is if you do, it was like, you know, hey, this thing's trash. <laughs> you knew, if you were still in it by that time, you really, yeah. you might be the last person. Do you remember the Penguins on CNBC when it was uh, Mark? Oh, yes. Yes. Joe Kernan. Then, it was it was the three of them for years. Yeah. Um, that's when Kramer they, was what, still on right? in the morning. No, this is this is pre-Kramer. I think Kramer's oh, still. Pre-Kramer. Oh, okay. What was Mark's name? Mark, um, he sadly passed away. Haynes? Mark Haynes? Yes, yeah, so it's Mark Haynes, Joe Haynes Kernan, Brown, yeah. and uh, the guy who's on with Kramer now with the with the David Faber. So it was the three of them. Yes, yes. Sorry, and, Faber, you're right. They used to make fun of if you had like five, I think it was five or more analyst downgrades, they would play a video of like these penguins walking and falling into the water. And it was always, you know, a stock was at 50, it goes to one on like horrible news. And then the analyst downgraded and they would play the the penguins, the penguin video. You remember that? I do. I do. All right. There was right, some like, horn associated with like, some noise in there too, right? Some annoying noise the penguins were, were doing. Yes. Yes, it, I, I think so, but it wasn't where they would just walk and they didn't even seem like they knew where they were going. They would just fall right into the water. <laughs> just fall right into the water. Yeah. I don't know if that's just how penguins dive into the water. If that's that's what they do, I don't know. I don't know, Jay. I don't get a lot right. of penguins in Florida. Uh, no, you don't. You don't. No, not a lot. Alligators. What are the alligators? Sure, doing? they're just yeah. in the water. All Everywhere. Right. That's it. We're we're done, Jay. All right, everyone. We'll be be back next week. (laughs) See you, everyone. Bye.